HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so... I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, Charles Beeler bleeds rosé. His father, Philippe, founded Chateau Rutas in Provence, France. But it wasn't until the late 1990s that Charles really found his place in the wine world. And behind the wheel of a pink Cadillac convertible, he drove across America, spreading the doctrine of drinking rosé. And as part of that dogma, decided not to pit old world versus new world. Rather, Charles cultivated rosé's unique relationship to all regions and wine drinkers alike, and thus Beeler Family Wines was born. And this year, Charles went on the 20th anniversary ride of his original rosé road trip, and though his pink Cadillac found its demise in Detroit, he still sees the world through rosé-colored glasses. So welcome, Charles. Happy to be here. Um, rosé is, is, is a wonderful wine, slightly polarizing to some. I don't know if you've ever come across those people in your line of work. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah, but, but I've always found it to be one of those very democratic glasses that if someone can't choose between 
a red and a white. They often reach for rosé. But let, let's try to actually explain what rosé is, because it's not an in-between. It's something of its own. Uh, you grew up in a, in a winemaking family. Can, can you tell me about your first sip of rosé, that first bottle on the table? Well, um, my, my dad's from uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And um, I remember my first glass of wine was actually um, a, a white wine from just outside of Geneva. Chasla was the grape. Um, crisp white wine. And it is what you drink when you're having fondue. In fact, I remember my dad specifically saying, uh, you know, you're not allowed to, to drink, you know, juice or milk or anything else with fondue. You need to have a glass of chasla. So I, I believe I was seven years old and that's what we were drinking. My mom watered it down a little bit and um, that's what we were drinking. Rosé for me really didn't um, enter uh, my life until I guess the mid-90s. So my dad, uh, so my mom's American, my dad's Swiss. I grew up back and forth across the Atlantic. My dad bought Chateau in 92, uh, largely because, he, well, he'd always had this dream of, of getting back to Europe and, and owning his own uh, place and learning how to make wine. Um, but his real passion is actually cooking. And he just marveled at the, the markets of Provence. And he desperately wanted to be in Provence, uh, mainly so that he had the excuse to go to the markets and buy amazing fish from the Mediterranean and beautiful vegetables and come home and make a fabulous meal for, for friends and family. And uh, so he thought if, if uh, he bought a little uh, winery or property or business there, he'd have the excuse then to live there full time. And, and, and wine was the ticket. Grapes were the ticket. And he, uh, so he bought, you know, Rutas was nothing when, when he bought it. It, it, it had some acreage, but um, no reputation. It was in the, you know, the ba- as he described it, the back country of Provence, the hills of Provence, which were particularly undesirable. Um, you know, this was long before the rich and famous vacationed in Provence. At the time, you know, it was not, it was not known as a wine region. It was hard, you know, Peter Mayles, A Year in Provence had come out not be- long before. So it was starting to gain some sort of um, international acclaim as a food and charming place. But it really, it was very much undiscovered, certainly wine-wise. Well, as a wine region too, it was, it was more so known for reds than ever was Absolutely. at that point. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, within France, there was some... And certainly in the South, there was uh, a, a certain amount of rosé production and consumption. But from an export point of view, any, anywhere beyond there, it was really not a thing. And so, yeah, Provence made a lot of red wine. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, today, it's, I think it's 94% of all wine production in Provence is rosé. And tragically, even areas like Bandol, which had been sort of the holdouts that had continued to make more red wine than, than rosé or white, um, has now has now flipped, and it's eighty plus percent uh, rosé production in, in Bandol. See, th- that makes me wonder whether or not that region went from something—I'm uh, not calling it Burgundian—but you know, uh, aristocratic red wine into something a little more egalitarian as rosé, and whether or not that is good for a wine region to swing from a high to maybe a medium price point. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. Yeah. We could spend the whole hour <laughs> talking about that. I mean, you know, um, obviously there are lots of different expressions in rosé, and there can be some some higher, um, really thoughtful expressions that are that are worth a bit more money than others. But I agree with you that you know once you sort of crest beyond 
30 40 dollars in rosé i i what are you getting it's more of a supply and demand thing and it's less I, I I think there's a more limited zone, and I bleed rosé. I, I mean, this has been my life's work, and I think about it, you know, every day of my life for the last, you know, 22 years, particularly um, from the production side to the communication side to the to the to the selling side, and um, so I'm deep in. But I I, I won't deny the fact that um, that it has a limited range in, in expression, and at a certain point, you know, it can only do so much. What what is that range from? both a color and a flavor perspective? Well, I mean, don't get me on the topic of color here yeah. because, it, you know, in the old days, color used to indicate the style that you were getting into, uh, that you could see the, the wine and like, okay, it's paler, it's going to be more, it's, uh, it's going to be sort of more delicate aromas, a bit more white wine oriented. If it's darker, it's going to be fuller, more phenolic, more structured, maybe sweeter. And um, I, I think all, all bets are off on color these days. There, there has been this sense that if it's paler, uh, it's more serious and sophisticated, and maybe you can get a better price for it. And so you're seeing, uh, including a lot of the, the biggest production wineries, the commercial wineries, um, very much aware of that. And I'm seeing today uh, pale wine that's sweet, that's uh, not quite what you expected. Its color is being manipulated um, through a lot of different ways. You know, you can use charcoal filtration to pull out colors you see in, in spirits. You can, um, you know, you can add white wine. You can, there are a lot of things you can do um, to sort of uh, influence what the color will be that's uh, quite hands-on versus, you know, what the grape delivers naturally, like Syrah delivers more uh, color than Grenache does naturally handled the same way you know if you're picking at night versus the heat of the day you're going to get a different uh your different different color result particularly if you're machine picking if you, when you're hand picking meaning the clusters come in um, perfectly intact you can control color a little bit more but um color is an interesting one and it's it's a it's a it's not as straightforward i think as maybe everybody wishes it were yeah and the the you know the the commodity companies, the commercial companies, they are onto it, and they know that there's a color preference, and so you gotta ask questions. You gotta know a bit more. Color is 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 it doesn't tell you everything anymore. Yeah, it not being the clear indicator. I, I didn't know of the controversy of even Sanyi of mm-hmm. you know bleeding the red wines to get the rosé. Yeah. Um, so what do you look for in a bottle uh, in, in you know that that first sip of rosé what is the ideal one for you you know for, uh, this this was sort of a breakthrough uh, description for me um, when in, the, in these early days remember i got involved with my dad in 1998 i was i was a uh, you know, I was essentially still a senior at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And my dad needed some help. And he said, hey, listen, kid, just help me for one year. After this, you can go and do anything you want. Um, because at the time, I had no interest in the wine industry, which seems ridiculous now that I think about that. But I didn't. You, you were a skier. I was a ski time, racer. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I was aiming for the U.S. ski team. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. I was injured. And he said, hey, listen, just help me for a year. A different I, slope. I was different <laughs> slope. Yeah, I, I was... Um, I was on this more academic track. I studied environmental economics. I'd written policy on my thesis. That I went and lobbied um, in D.C. with the chief of the Forest Service, which he actually got passed under Clinton, which was very exciting. And to me, that was where I was going. And, and then he came along, hey, listen, just help me. We're making some beautiful wine here, but I, I, I'm really struggling to get it out there. People don't understand rosé, and we need to try to go make a market. Um, but, but one of my, my descriptions was thinking, 
trying to decouple, because at the time, pink wine was white Zinfandel. That end of story. It was sweet and it was unsophisticated. And people, a lot of people loved white Zinfandel. Nothing wrong with that. It's brought a lot of wine drinkers into the, into the wine industry. But people were just totally stuck on it being uh, related to white Zinfandel. So I, I was trying to break that habit. And I, w- I would describe great rosé as essentially like great Sauvignon Blanc with a little bit of red fruit. Because this, it's this tug of war between um, a little bit of the cherry, the watermelon, the raspberry, uh, that light red fruit style, and just as much opposing savory, salty, grassy, herbal, mineral, floral, stone fruit. It, to me, it's, it's the, you almost want the, the savory non-fruit side to win out in this tug of war. It's not just about this big, splashy watermelon it should be obviously there needs to be acid to kind of hold it all together but it's it is that tension and it's not it's not a grape variety it's not a color it's not a part of the world it's not a soil type that's going to deliver that tension um but to me it's in that tension is is the magic and um so that i've been doing a lot of preaching about that these these last um you know 62 days on the road uh, well, pretty much the last 21 years of, 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 of bringing that to life. And, and, you know, today, I don't know if you want to get into this, but they're with, you know, every winery in the world now making rosé. It's the, it's the fastest growing wine category. Um, it has been for three years. There's now, my gosh, there's now rosé tequila. There's rosé gin. There's rosé cider. There's rosé. I, 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 I couldn't believe this. Yesterday, I saw on a, on a Pepsi bottle. Pepsi, you know, the cola, um, on the side of it said, rosé all day. It's become this sort of lifestyle, sort of summer chant. And, and as a result, everybody's hopped in, and it's really eroded the, I think, the understanding of what it is and the integrity of what it is and really what ignited it. And it's just this, you know, and summer and celebration is a part of it and refreshment is a part of it. Um, it doesn't have to be that complicated, but it also just needs to have that tension. Well, and- I mean, in that, is it a new category? I, I know there are old world ones in Aix and Provence, but there are also new world in Long Island. I mean, I guess you could even consider Loire new world, some Austrian roses as well, Spanish risottos. Um, when did the impetus of rosé really start in the world? And uh, why do you think this, this you know, boom of rosé happened not just you know uh, commercially but just in the wine industry alone you know when did it start i mean there's thousands of years of of rosé history in provence that that is the homeland that's where it's been um you know why this this incredible acceleration in and excitement about rosé these these last few years i mean I need, to, I need to emphasize, you know, so it's been close to 22 years that I've been making wine, starting with my dad, Rutas, his early days. And, um, and I, I looked like a fool for being so obsessed with rosé until about six years ago. It started to kind of turn and look a little smarter now. So it's all, it's very recent history. Um, I, I mean, I would, I would start, you know, rosé is, um, is, it pairs with everything. It is so versatile. And I'm talking rosé in sort of the traditional sense of this sort of tug of war between a little bit of red fruit, a lot of savory. Um, you know, whether it's it's spicy food or lighter fare. My good friend Joel God has a uh, eight restaurants in California called Gott's Roadside. It was called Taylor's in the early days and it is the number one seller of of Bieler rosé uh, in in California on premise. Uh, they and you think it's a hamburger restaurant, you know, 
they, they should be should maybe should be a cavern you know in, in wine country all in northern california should be should be ham, you know it should be cabernet or zinfandel no um for the last four years it's been the number one selling um wine by the bottle wine by the glass you know it, it it's so part of that is it's a, there's it's an outdoor setting it's it's a more it's more sort of it's a fun environment i think rosé invites fun and celebration and 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 outdoor eating and um, but it also, I think, says that it, it, it pairs with a huge diversity of things. It's not just, you know, with your salad or for your aperitif. Or, um, it, it really covers you all the way through. I can honestly say I've had your rosé at Gott's Roadside with uh, those delicious raw tuna tacos that oh, they yeah, make, that, the hatch green yeah, chili tacos, cheeseburger. Yeah. But it also goes great with a milkshake. Totally does. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's No, but, I mean, jokes aside, it really does. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, yes, you are in the middle of... Napa in wine country. I usually go to the one in St. Helena, and it, it seems like a larf not to reach for the red, but you know, it's also a midday thing uh, that I think rose automatically. Mm-hmm. It's not rose all day in my mind, it's rose like you know, during the afternoon mm-hmm. to bridge the gap between morning and night. Not that I wake up and grab a glass of anything specifically, but rose has a much bigger latitude than red and white wine now. Hundred percent, yeah, and and it tends to be under thirteen percent alcohol. So it, you know, reds these days are 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 uh, moving up in alcohol. I mean, there's a movement that's challenging that, but it's a small uh, movement. They are quite loud in, in their voice, but overall, alcohols are 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 getting higher. It, I would say, in part, not necessarily because uh, people are necessarily uh, wanting that. I I I, I observe as a over these last twenty two years. Um, watching the vineyards that we use to make our wines, I'm seeing earlier and earlier ripening. I'm seeing, I'm seeing sugar before flavor, and you're often having to uh, push back, pick till the point where flavor comes along, and that often means higher alcohol. Particularly, you know, red wine is a bit more tolerant of that. Rosé isn't. So, um, you know, that's actually one of the things we've talked a lot about as I've been out. Uh, you know, that our, uh, you know, we were. Charles Smith and I, we, we make a wine together called Charles and Charles, and we thought, you know, if we were ever to buy it and add in the wine spectator with a big splashy headline, you know, what would it be to sort of speak to what we're doing in a rosé? And, and we've decided this is really commercially not a good idea. But, um, but, <laughs> but it's but it, great to say on Heritage. But, but yeah, on Heritage, it, it's our rosé vineyards make really shitty red wine. <laughs> <laughs> Very proudly so. These are vineyards that we pick late in the season that um, unless we brought yields down by about 50%, they would not ripen to the level that you would want to make big, powerful, chewy red wine. And that's perfect for what we're doing with rosé. You know, in, in Provence, one of the exciting things about Aix-en-Provence, where, where we make Beeler, is um, it is uh, the highest, uh, on average, elevation vineyards in Provence. Côte de where Rutas originally was, and Côte d'Aix are the hilly areas of Provence. Côte de Provence, on average, is the basin, the lower. On average, it's about 700 feet. Côte de Côte d'Aix, that's about 1,200 feet. We pick, on average, two to three weeks later than Côte de Provence. Obviously, there are exceptions. I'm just speaking generally. And that allows us to slow down ripening, keep alcohols lower, maintain more natural acidity. And um, in order to tease out the more... Uh, what I think is the really important savory side of things, uh, you need to slow down the development of the big, powerful red fruit. Red fruit is dominant. And if it, if it, if it becomes prominent, it, it, you can have loads of 
peach and grass and herbal and mineral, but you'd never see it because the fruit just dominates. So we're trying to slow down uh, ripening. And um, so, yeah, back to this, this idea about our rosé vineyards make really shitty red wine. It's damn true. And it's, uh, I think it would make a terrible wine spectator rat. <laughs> I don't think a consumer could handle it. But, um, uh, but, it's, but it's important. We, we, you know, we're not trying to be everything to everybody. You know, in this boom of rosé with everybody now making some, a lot of folks are just converting over ordinary red wine vineyards. Vineyards planted to make full throttle red wine. And they're trying to find this sort of balance in rosé. And it's really hard. And as a result, there's, um, there's a lot of manipulation to try to achieve that through whether adding acid, whether that's change, messing with color, whether that's adding white wine, all sorts of things you can do to try to find more complexity and balance. And I understand why they're doing it. It's one of the reasons, actually, you mentioned Austria um, making some pretty compelling rosé these days. And I agree with you. It's a naturally cooler climate that has never made terrific red wine. And it's, you know, think about the Finger Lakes. You know, um, Bruce Schneider and I have a brand called the Gotham Project. We've been making Cab Franc uh, red and rosé in the Finger Lakes for the last number of years. And um, the results are increasingly interesting. An area that has been focused on white wine struggled to make uh, powerful red wine. Probably never will. I don't know. Maybe another hundred years of climate change, it will. But it's uh, it, it it has this sort of natural ability based on 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 this cooler region to make pretty compelling rosé. See, I, I love that you're not trying to force rosé into a box. And we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about 2005, where you decided to solely focus on rosé and your family. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Cool. This episode is brought to you by Cart Driver, Denver's home for wood-fired pizzas, fresh oysters, seasonal market plates, cocktails, and conversation. Tucked in a 640-square-foot shipping container space in the heart of Denver's Rhino neighborhood, Cart Driver is the perfect place to stop in for an Italian-style spritz, Prosecco on tap, and a wide variety of tinned fish. Open for lunch, dinner, community hour, and late nights seven days a week, Cart Driver is here for you with fresh, domestically sourced ingredients and, above all, hospitality. Learn more at cart-driver.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with Charles Beeler of Beeler Family Wines and the Rosé Road Trip. Uh, I wanted to talk about a specific year, and that's 2005. Your father sold Chateau Rutas, and that's when you started solely focusing on rosé um, and started a, a label called Parrot Offfields, uh, yeah. Father and Son. You named, I think, one of your first, if not your first rosé, after your daughter, Sabine. Uh, one, what does it mean to be a family winery? And Two, how important is it to, to put the blinders on to white and red and focus on rosé? Or have you expanded that portfolio since that? I've expanded it. Uh, yeah, even in the Beeler world, I have expanded a little bit. And, of course, I have a number of other brands where uh, I'm you know, producing from Washington, California to Argentina to New York. I'm all over the place. Nobody's safe. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, so in 2005, uh, my dad had an opportunity to sell Rutas, which was really never his goal. He, remember, he was in Provence uh, looking for the excuse to just go to the markets and buy amazing food and come home and cook for friends and family. And, and that uh, is something still he does. But somebody came along, and, and it was, was one of the early years where uh, Rutas was starting to turn the corner of really struggling to like, okay, this is going to work out. And, and um, so somebody came along, my, my dad thought, oh my gosh, I can, you know, I, I can get out of this clean. And after you know, losing a lot of money those early years. So he, he took the opportunity and um, that, that was in 2005. And I immediately um, knew that we had to do something to keep uh, the family project going. We'd, we'd come so far. I mean, again, 2005 was long before Rosé was popular. It wasn't a thing here, but it'd come a long way since 1998. Um, and I, I could see that there was a future. I never could have imagined it would become what it is today. You know, there, there are the people like Whispering Angel who think that they invented Rosé. You know, 2005, they hadn't even started. And we here we were many years into this whole uh, project and and so uh, we had this this really uh, exciting opportunity to rethink, knowing what you know our collective knowledge in 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 Provence, my dad and I and and Rosé, and you know if we were to restart in Provence anywhere, where would it be? And it was clear that Rosé was our was going to be our focus, and we wanted to be into these high elevation vineyards, and they were in Cotodex. And that's where we went immediately. There was no hesitation whatsoever. And so we established Beeler Prairie Feast that same year. Sabine um, was born that year. Um, and uh, so she she got herself her, her own wine. So Beeler Prairie Feast Sabine was was our first rosé, and, and it continues on today. Still all these same vineyards. We've we've added a lot of other vineyards over the years and, and grown quite a lot. But, um, you know, we were not interested in making red wine. We were uh, we were interested in, in focusing on this high tone, this high tension style, and um, it was clear to me already these uh, progressively warmer vintages. I wanted elevation. I wanted natural acidity. I didn't want to have pressure to uh, pick earlier to maintain acidity, or worse, um, you know, have to add acid later. We wanted it to be true expression of, of place. When did you decide to do that outside of Provence? Because you found yourself a world of like-minded winemakers. I did. I think you feel our family as well now. 100%. Um, family, so, mentors. Yeah, yeah, but it's been wonderful to see you take that rosé knowledge, that, that familiar understanding of this wine, and, and expand that uh, to all corners of the globe. Mm. I know you mentioned that you make wine in Washington and Argentina. Where was your first stop outside of Provence to make a rosé? Uh, it was Washington, uh, 2008. Um, I, so for, for quite a few years, um, I had been paying attention to what wineries were making uh, in California in particular for, for rosé. And for the most part, I w- it was pretty underwhelming. It tended to be um, saigné. It tended to be uh, folks who were um, growing grapes to make red wine, picking to make red wine, but to concentrate their tanks. Um, they were bleeding out, which is what Saint Day means, um, a little bit of juice early in the fermentation and bottling it as rosé. That was generally what you saw. I'm forgetting about the whole Whites and Videl end of the spectrum. Um, there were a few wineries, one, one in particular, Rob Sinsky, um, a producer I've always admired. He was making a Van Gris of, of Pinot Noir um, in, in Carneros that 
was really the first one, first rosé that I thought, holy cow, okay, here's the tension, here's the balance, this is cool. And, it, and I, I began, began to just obsess about uh, what I could do um, in, in the U.S. And, and I initially looked all over California, and, and, and there was plenty of interesting um, fruit available. But the, the, the fruit that I thought was most appropriate to make this high-tone style tended to be the higher-elevation vineyards. Carneros or Sonoma Coast or Santa Barbara. And a lot of this fruit was some of the most expensive in the state. And I, I was a decidedly a value guy. It wasn't great wine at any price. So I, I went north. Um, and I next up, next stop was Oregon. And okay, uh, Pinot Noir can make a beautiful rosé. It's further northern latitude, a little bit cooler. Um, we can slow down ripening. This is all positive. And as I got to understand the cost of fruit, I I struggled with it. I, I, and I must say, I still struggle today. Oregon makes beautiful wine, but the cost of fruit on average to me is, um, is higher than, than my tolerance. I'm, again, I'm, I'm a stated value guy. And that's what led me to Washington. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I actually didn't know much about Washington, but it was further north yet, you know, northern latitude, cooler yet. And I realized, holy cow, the Columbia Valley is unbelievable. You know, there's this huge... Um, apple, you know, growing area, diurnal temperature shift equivalent of the Napa Valley, um, very high quality fruit and unbelievably good value uh, f- fruit. And I was immediately like, I just blown away. And I only knew one guy there. And is uh, <laughs> you he, knew the right guy? I, it turned out. <laughs> I it turned out I did. He was an. He wasn't. Ex- he wasn't nearly as established as he is today. But he he was already making a lot of noise. He's. Um, he, you know, he, he's from Sacramento. He you got mean a, literal noise, too. Yeah, literal yeah. noise in every sense. In fact, he's been on your show, hasn't he? Not on my show, no. but I, I've met him a handful of yeah. times. And he's, uh, he's a passionate guy. He, um, yeah, he, he uh, grew up in, in California, went to Europe to, to manage rock bands, came back to the United States with just a few bucks in his pocket, found himself in Walla Walla with an amazing mentor and Christophe Baron of Cayuse, and uh, learned how to make wine through Christophe and... and turned out to have an incredible talent and has gone on to make some some of the most exciting wines in North America, I believe. But then when you and Charles Smith joined together to make Charles and Charles, was the first iteration of that label what it is today? Yes, it that is. American exactly. Flag? O- almost identical. Yeah. It, it, it was, um, you know, we, we you know, the, the inspiration of how we were, were making the wine was very much instructed by what I knew in Provence. Um, but we didn't want to project this fake French story. This was, this wine was decidedly American, from America. Remember, this was my goal was to show the world that America could make high-toned, beautiful, uh, uh, well-priced rosé. And drink it, too. And, and drink and it, yeah. And, and, you know, it's a wine that you could, you know, you could buy on a Tuesday night and drink half a bottle with your leftovers and not feel guilty and feel super satisfied. To me, that's where the rubber meets the road. And uh, Charles sh- shared that same goal. And, and um, so, yeah, we, we went for this very sort of abstract... Um, non-wine traditional look and and you know I, I i don't at the time we didn't really have any particular goals we just was was more just to prove that we could and actually that's been one of the exciting things about charles and charles overall is charles makes loads of wine individually i make loads of wine individually when it came to charles and charles we were only 
willing to move forward if we were learning something, if we, if, if we were experimenting and, um, and sometimes it worked, sometimes it di- didn't, but it, it, we, we were, we've been fearless, more fearless than we would normally be in our individual projects because we really had nothing to lose. It was, it was just this, it was this, uh, experimental zone. And, um, you know, we, we, we you know, our, our, f- our first, our first goal when we decided to, to make the wine was to find growers who planted, you know, Grenache doesn't ripen very well in Washington. It's too cold. Grenache needs more heat than Syrah, which is why you see a lot of Syrah, not a lot of Grenache. The only Grenache you tend to see from Washington State uh, is on the higher price end of the spectrum because you have to have really low yields to be able to ripen it. So our original goal was to find growers who planted Syrah in too cold a place that they couldn't sell the fruit to anybody who wanted to make red wine. And for us, that was perfect because <laughs> uh, we were strictly focused on rosé and, and we've since then encouraged our growers to plant in even cooler spots, really, you know, that, to the point where the growers think we're absolutely insane, you know, that, that, that uh, doesn't always ripen, that doesn't, you know, we were looking for just over 12% alcohol. We wanted to pick in October. We wanted this taut, bright profile. And, um, but, you know, that was just the beginning. We, we make a bunch of other wines. I know here we're here to talk about rosé, but, you know, when it came to our red wine, the goal was to, uh, can we scale um, all native yeast fermentation? Native yeast ferments are, are typical for small wineries, high-end wineries. It's never done on scale. When I, when I say on scale, that means, you know, wineries are producing 20, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 cases and above. Can we, uh, can we do whole cluster fermentation with the Syrah part of our red wine on scale? I'm not talking a couple thousand cases. I'm talking... 80, 100,000 cases. Can we keep the wines on their skins once it goes dry for another several weeks? Um, typically, commercial wines, you as soon as they go dry, you press them off and you bring in the next set of fruit because economically you kind of need to. And and you know, in the Charles Charles Red program, it's all native. It's mostly whole cluster. It's extended time on their skins. And these are wines that sell for 12 bucks. And and we would never have had the guts to do that if we really had nothing to lose. It was sort of our our playpen, and it continues to be. And no one said making rosé was easy, but it, it seems like the easy choice these days, especially during July 4th with that American flag emblazoned on the label. And I, I really wonder, was that a point where you not only said to yourself, yes, you can grow great grapes for wonderful rosé in the U.S., but that Americans are willing to drink it? Uh, I know that initial tour in the pink Cadillac around the country was, you know, not just a marketing ploy, but you, you wanted to connect with the people on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it was desperation. Yeah, let's yeah, let's exactly. call it what it was. I, it was full PT Barnum, whatever it took to try to engage people for a second. Yeah. And we've discussed about what people didn't understand and luckily have more of a grasp on today, but why do that again, 20 years removed rather than just a victory lap? This seemed like yeah. something more. Oh yeah, definitely. No, good, good question. A lot of people ask me, you know, Charles, finally you can relax. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the category's here. No, it, it came down to, well, first of all, I don't relax. Um, secondly, um, my, my concern of Rosé losing its way a little bit, losing its focus, losing its identity, it's, it's become this lifestyle ornament that everybody is, every category is co-opting in some way. And um, I, you know, I, I wanted to go remind people what ignited this whole thing. And, and particularly in the wines that we produce, I wanted to talk about um, our h- hardcore approach, these 100% vineyard-driven approach, which um, you tend not to see unless you start spending $10 plus more than what ours cost on the shelf. So um, 
yeah, there's been this 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 marketeering sort of takeover of the category, and 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 I should I should add, you know, it is also the golden age. There is more exciting rosé in the market too. Uh, so there are, you know, I, I don't think that I own integrity, not at all. There's tons of great stuff out there, but um, but it's harder and harder to see because there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of big companies jamming it in, and there's a lot of just. Uh, oh well, you know, I you know, all it takes to make rosé is you know a red wine vineyard, and you can make it anywhere in the world, and that that's what's happening. Well, it's easy to see a '65 Deville rolling into a city with you behind the wheel. I mean, that pink Cadillac just screams rosé. What cities did you plot on your roadmap? You, you did 40 in total, or attempted to. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I did all of them. Okay. Don't, don't show me that yeah. we had we had some stumbles along the way. Yeah. No, it was six, 62 days in total. Is 40 one or two cities that we stopped and did full full days um i, I actually want just before i go there just one one quick thing to your last question it was it was my dad and my wife who really encouraged me you know what charles you got to get out there and protect what's ours and and remind everybody where we've been they were also very much a part of the conversation of getting out there and um you know, 20, 20 years later. So yeah, the, the route though, uh, this time was almost the exact same route that I took 20 years ago, starting in the Northwest, working to the, to the Southwest, across the South, up to the Northeast. There were a few exceptions, a few things that were, were different this time, but I was trying to, to be true to that, that original tour. I mean, granted, you know, the original tour, I would turn up in a town, um, not knowing anybody without a distributor, without a store that had any of it. And it was a lot of just banging on doors on distributors, I would get the name of a wholesaler from the city I was in before who somebody said, oh, yeah, call so-and-so. Or, you know, and this was pre-Google. This is 1999. Maybe Google had just started. I don't know. Certainly I wasn't on it. And, uh, you know, I'd look in the yellow pages under wholesalers and start, oh, this sounds like a wine hole, so I'm going to call there. And I, I would be turning up. I had three vintage pink tuxedos and this big old 65 DeVille. I was, you know, I was 23. I looked like I was 12. And, and it, I was ridiculous. And, you know, most of the time the car would break down. And I, I realized that AAA will tow you 100 miles. So I would, I, the rare time that I actually got a meeting in a city ahead of where I was, it would, I would never have the meeting be more than 100 miles from where I was because I knew when the car broke down, which <laughs> never really did, they'd tow me in. And actually, at the time, if you waited 24 hours, they'd tow you another 100. So you could actually make it 200. Um, they, that is now not uh, possible. With AAA, there, I think you have only three 100-mile tows that they'll give you. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is because of you. I'm pretty yeah. sure. It was, I'm sure it's my abuse. But now, 20 years again, removed from that initial trip, what's the difference in rolling into Cincinnati? Um, who do you see there? Are there small shops? Is it the Kroger? And, and is the reaction different from just meeting the general public? Yeah, uh, well, what's different about it is, you know, I'm greeted with open arms and just enthusiasm and, you know, n- not quite parades, but, you know, relative parades to before. I mean, you know, people would be scared of me. It would be, you know, they, they didn't know what to make of me. The whole act, I'm, you know, it, it would almost sound like I'm in theater wanting to turn up in that car with these outfits. I, I was a shy kid, but I had to do something to... Um, to uh, sort of disengage this this armor that a lot of distributors and buyers had about rosé all these preconceived notions and this it turned out the car was magical and making people smile uh and when people are smile they they do put their guard down or open to a new idea so i mean 20 years on it 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 was it was so different because it was certainly was planned out our wines are everywhere but the goal was to 
to talk with as many people as possible. And that started with just the small shops and restaurants, the independents that really started this thing. You know, Kroger didn't, and I love Kroger and their supporter supporters across the board, but you know, they didn't ignite Rosé in America. They, they, they've only added it in the last six years. Uh, you know, it was the small independents who, who uh, took, you know, were brave enough to, you know what, this is delicious. You know what, I'm going to stack this up in, in front of my little shop here, and I'm going to force my customers to, to try it. Who were those early adopters? I mean, shout out to a couple of the places around the country, those small shops that are still carrying those initials. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you know how I met Joel Gott? Um, he had a little grocery store called Palisades Market. In, in Calistoga, California, just north of St. Helena. And they sold sandwiches and they had some uh, fresh produce and they had some, you know, a few stacks of wine. I met Joel because I couldn't believe that there was a store that bought a case of the Rutas Rose in you know, 1998, 1999, actually sold through it within a few weeks and bought another one. <laughs> and I wanted to find out what the hell was happening that he was successfully. Um, selling it through, and now you, know, you guys are business partners, and now we are, yeah. and, and and so like who, and, and, and he, yeah, so um, you know there were there were of course that you know that Manhattan and San Francisco was always a little bit further ahead. There were always uh, independents who um, who would have a few and restaurants that that would have, but you know then there were you know little stores in Stowe, Vermont, uh, you know the Stowe Beverage Depot, and the, these places that sort of that you know through familial collection uh connections would take a chance on me you know they were uh i think they were just uh maybe they were taking pity on me and in, in, <laughs> in my my plight um yeah I, I will say um whole foods was one of the the first uh bigger groups who really took a position and forced the topic you know i'm convinced that a retailer can sell whatever the heck they stack up in front and if it's actually uh if it's compelling and, and, and real, people will come back for, for more. And, and they, uh, this is in a small independent, well, though at the time they were a whole lot smaller than they, than they are now and very much had that feel. They really, as a group across the country, um, when, it come, when it came spring, early on, they would stack it up and force the topic. Um, so there, you know, there, there were you know, little shops in Santa Fe, New Mexico, that you know, it, it was isolated, little... Um, Little stores who just believed in it, loved it, and and uh, and and had the guts to just force the topic, force it into the customer's hand. You know, it didn't. Sadly, um, restaurants are not a place where m- most people experiment with wine. Uh, they tend to, from what I observe anyway, they tend to be more conservative. I think maybe because the higher markups, they feel that they don't want to risk too much money. But it's retail in particular where where people, particularly in a good good retail where there's a somebody working the floor who can tell a story bring it to life and stand up for it and they have to greet you when you come back in so if it was a bad experience you know they have to take it full on so it was it was independent retail that 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 um, really got this whole thing going but it seems like outside those specialty shops rosé is you know something that people have an affinity towards and i i want to talk about your last stop detroit i know you extended the trip but without the caddy um and i don't want to linger on the fact that the caddy went up in flames uh but what does a hard-working town like detroit mean to rosé and i mean even talk about it from a pairings perspective like what are the foods that it goes well with what are the stories that you tell people that that hopefully brings them into this greater rosé world 
Well, 20 years ago when I passed through uh, Detroit, I could not get one single meeting. I called wholesalers, I called, knocked on doors of stores, and I got nowhere. It was one of the few places where I was truly rejected. You know, I was eating rice and beans that night, sleeping in the back of the, the car. I mean, I, uh, so, you know, to return 20 years later, um, to, to go to uh, you know, great restaurants like Ghost Story, which is one of the great d- downtown Detroit uh, restaurants. And actually, there's, there's a food scene that's happening there that's pretty exciting. Um, there We ha- had some excellent ramen, uh, which pairs brilliantly with, with Rosé. Ghost Story, I can't remember what they served. We had a, uh, we had a trade event there. Um, you know, there, the, I, I think it, well, I will say when I was, was passing through Detroit, it was the first time since early February that it had been sunny for three days in a row and Detroit was like out of their minds in happiness. It, they've had the most miserable winter and spring. I'm not sure if you know that. And they were so pumped. So honestly, I would say anybody who turned up with anything on that day <laughs> three of that. Especially someone in a pink Cadillac with, with a, a trunk full of Yeah, absolutely. Day. They were, so it was, it was an, an easy moment to, to generate excitement. I'm not answering your question directly, um, you know, we, 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 we saw a huge range of the, again, the goal was not just to see Kroger and Meyer and Hope. We wanted to see the independent shops who, who really started this movement. And I respect what they did in those early days and took the risks and the independent restaurants. Um, and also, you know, when it came, comes to, to my wholesale network is, is reminding everybody that there's a lot of rosé out there and they're not all created weak equal let's hold it to a higher standard let's at least everybody's entitled to like what they like but let's just understand how the how rosé is made and how you get these different results and then people can choose as they as they want and lastly where does rosé go from here uh what what are we going to see 20 years from now when you uh jump back in that caddy and roll yeah around that'll be states? i think that'll be my kids hopefully <laughs> yeah. 20, 20 years from now well, I, I honestly, I, I think that there's, um, over the next few years, this, uh, there's going to be a bit of a clean out. I think it's a bit overheated. I, I hope that um, some of the frivolous nonsense uh, cl- clears away. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think, um, I think there's going to be great, there's going to be more diversity in the offerings there than there has been traditionally. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, there, there's so many sort of slogan-driven um, big new marketing brands that are rolling out. I, I just I don't see that many of them have much staying power. And I think it's going to kind of get back to, to the basics, the folks who have been doing the hard work from the beginning consistently. Um, so I, I, I see Rosé um, continuing to, to grow, but at a slower pace and in a, in a shift um, back uh, back to the traditionalists, and that doesn't just mean Provence. I think they're 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 they're. I, it's not a grape type. It's not a country. It's not a soil type. It's just finding that high tension, and there should be a, a broad range of perspective. And I think um, I think there's going to be great diversity in it. But I I, I think there's, uh, but I do see a, a shakeout. Um, before it sort of really settles in. Well, everyone can keep on following your Rosé Road Trip through that hashtag or visit BeelerWines.com to check out all the amazing wines you make. And uh, even though you didn't show up in a caddy, I appreciate that you showed up with the pink converse. Yeah, I'm taking those off since, I don't know, 
early uh, May. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for all the work you've done, all the rosé you've made. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlington-Kell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Cart Driver for sponsoring Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.